0: anyone fascinated with the the court system yeah, yeah i am I, this, is, this is true I, I love thinking to try why are there so many tv shows about trials and the court system and arrests and all i mean this is a, an area of fascination i am i think i've shared this before i'm one of those weird people that is just dying to get on a jury I, <laughs> I would love to sit on a jury, and I've gotten called into the jury box three times. I've had three legitimate chances, and every time I've been denied, which I take very personally. And I'm I'm getting over it. And and the last couple times I was denied as soon as they found out I was a pastor. So um, if you want a way out of jury duty, don't use that because that would be lying. Um, But for whatever reason, they hear I'm a pastor and... The defense thinks that I'm going to be mean and judgmental, and the, um, the prosecution usually thinks that I'm going to be loving and kind and merciful, and neither want that. But I really want to serve on a trial someday, because you're, you're in a process of saying, is this person innocent, or are they guilty? And just all of the different things that go into that are fascinating. You know, most defendants in that case, what do they say? I'm... I'm not guilty. I'm innocent. And that's why you're having a trial. And, and it, it's sort of like at home whenever anything happens and maybe we we find something out or something broken and we say, who did this? And it's amazing because none of my kids ever have done it. And I know those of you with parents have felt the same way. It's always not me, not me. And I, I'm looking at it. I'm like, those are your shorts. That's your clothes. What do you mean you didn't leave? Oh, no, it must have been my sibling we'll we'll just keep it that way we have this need to somehow present ourselves as not guilty and that it's not us that did that and we're innocent what's interesting is we come to this point in luke we come to to the next set of trials of jesus and luke is going to be very intentional to to give us a meticulous defense and a meticulous proof that jesus actually was innocent that he did not do any of the charges that he was being accused of, that he didn't wasn't guilty of these things and didn't deserve death. And this makes all the difference in the world, right? This makes all the difference in our salvation. Remember Luke, he is spending time proving our salvation and saying our certain salvation. If Jesus was guilty, just think about this for a minute as we start this morning. What if Jesus was guilty? What if Jesus was a sinner? Where does that leave us? It leaves us on the cross. Yeah, why? Because whose sin did Jesus pay for then? His own. If, If he's a sinner, if he's guilty, if he has offended Almighty God, then he is paying the price on the cross with his life and he is not paying our price. He is not paying the penalty for all sins. It also, if he is a sinner, if he is guilty, it calls into question everything written about him. It calls into question the truth of the word of God. And so this is a key issue that Luke, while he will skip some of the details of how many times Jesus is beaten and how many times all this happened, Luke is, it's Dr. Luke and the historian, and he is zeroing in on Jesus was innocent. We already saw that with the Jewish trials, that they didn't have anything legitimate. They didn't understand where he was coming from. And now from the Roman trials, we're going to look at three phases this morning where, Jesus says, where Luke says he was innocent. And we're going to get to, to peer into the system, like if you were on jury duty or like if you were observing in the courthouse. We're going to get to peer in on these trials and see the summaries of these three different phases of the trials. You know, last week... We ended with the Jewish phases. And it, we ended chapter 22 with Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And I think I have a picture of a, a, the Sanhedrin, Jeremiah, if you could put that up. It would have looked something like this. We had 71 men, Pharisees and Sadducees, and, and the chief priests that were leading. And the accused would be that person standing in the middle. I know the font's a little small there. Um, the, the accused would have been standing in the middle with all of the, the people judging him standing around. And witnesses could come up. And Jesus has just been through that Friday morning. And he has stood there and he has heard the accusations of blasphemy. And he has, he has heard the verdict that you're guilty, even though he knew that he wasn't. But there was a problem. The problem, the big problem, is if you get into the political intrigue, the problem was the Jews had no right to kill anybody. They legally could not take someone and execute them. And so if they wanted Jesus executed, they needed to build a coalition with the Romans. And they needed to get the Romans on their side and somehow get the Romans to, to condemn Jesus to death. So turn with me to Luke 23. And we're going to watch that process this morning. Luke 23. We're going to look at verses 1 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right under the seat around you. We'd love for you to take one and follow along, Luke chapter twenty-three, one through twenty-five, and it starts with with just a, a the straightforward statement. Then the whole company of them at this this trial here, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and so that Luke's setting the scene. They get up from their Jewish trial and now they have to get the Romans on board. And so they take him to Pilate. Pilate is a governor or prefect ruling over the area with the authority of Rome. And so if they get anyone to condemn him, it has to be Pilate. And Pilate could condemn Jesus to death. Now as we go through the trial this morning, as we read through these verses, we are reading through verses that describe how our Lord and Savior was mocked how he was beaten, unjustly accused, and declared guilty when he had done nothing wrong. And that, this morning, should stir our hearts. And one of my my goals is that we, we really identify with Jesus and our love for Jesus deepens because we see what he went through because of his love for us. And that should deepen our, our feelings of love for him. It should deepen our gratitude for him. This, today, we're, we're celebrating Thanksgiving weekend, And even though we come to a serious text, this should make us grateful and thankful for what Jesus has done. Because it wasn't easy. He went through it for us. But then also, as I mentioned, I want us to see how many times Luke is making this case that Jesus was innocent. And so verse 1 is the setting. The Jews bring Jesus before Pilate, but they've got to come up with different charges. Their charge was, he thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks that he's God and placing himself equal with God. Pilate doesn't care about that. Pilate could care less if he thinks he's God. He, he can be delusional in that way. Pilate is more concerned, did he break any Roman laws? And the only way he'll execute him is if he broke Roman laws. And so we come to verse 2 and we get right to the charges. Luke is just going right to the details, which I love on this. And they begin, they being the the Jewish leaders, and they begin to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And they level three charges against Jesus. Charge number one, misleading our nation. Some translations will say subverting the nation. And the idea is that he's, he's... He's bringing up ideas. He's bringing up statements that would turn people against Rome. He's an insurrectionist. And so he's subverting, he's stirring people up. He's a threat to peace. He's trying to seduce loyalty from the empire. And so the argument here is he is a direct threat to Rome. You don't want want him around, do you? You don't want him stirring things up, Pilate. Here, here's our first charge. He says he's a king, a revolutionary, to overthrow you. Now we know this wasn't true. We know that Jesus said love one another. We know that he taught forgiveness and reconciliation and he never once took action against the Roman Empire. Against the, the, the religious leaders, yeah. But we know this wasn't true. Charge number two. He forbids us to give tribute to Caesar. And this is clearly false. If you remember what we just looked at in Luke, what Pastor Andrew talked about, what, what did Jesus say when he was asked about taxes? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He said, pay your taxes. This one is, a, and there's witnesses there. This one is easy to disprove. But it was a serious charge. The, the Jews here are picking charges that they thought would push Pilate's buttons. See, about 25 years earlier, and Pilate would have known this. He wasn't governor at the time, but he would have known this. About 25 years earlier, Judas of Galilee, he provoked an insurrection against Rome over the issue of Roman taxation. One of Pilate's major responsibilities, he had two, basically. Keep the peace, collect taxes for Rome. It's interesting. The charges go for both of those. And they're trying to say, this is your job. You're to collect taxes. And he doesn't want you to collect taxes. Now they're lying. But they're trying to hit Pilate with what matters most to him. This one, again, absolutely not true. Charge number three, claiming to be king. Claiming to be king. This is the one that's that's sort of true. And this is the one where it's true, but not in the way that they're saying it, not in the way that they're they're presenting it. They're saying he's claiming to be an earthly king. He's claiming to have more power to be a replacement for Caesar. And so they're trying to, again, portray this as someone causing an insurrection. He's going to try to take over power. And yeah, it's true that he was a king, but not in the way they were saying. He's not an earthly king at this point. He wasn't there to replace Rome. He was a, a spiritual king. He wants to be king of our hearts. He wants to be king of our lives. And so, yeah, this one, maybe, maybe not. But this is the one that Pilate's going to talk about. This is the one he's going to explore because the others are are just so obviously not true and and easy to prove that they aren't true. And so we get to to verse 3. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate goes there. And I can just imagine, Pilate, put yourself in Pilate's place. This man who's been a man of peace, he's been teaching in the temple, he's caused no problems, gets drugged in by the Jewish leaders, and they say, this guy's causing a riot, he's going to th- overthrow Rome here. And Pilate looks at him. Pilate's like, this man? Really? He's going to overthrow Rome? He, he, this guy's leading an army? And, and so Pilate goes, there, and that's a little bit of my conjecture there, but I think Pilate was a little bit surprised. Because Jesus didn't look like a revolutionary or a king in the sense that Rome would have cared about. But he asks him in verse 3, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered the same way we saw last week. He said, You've said so. You've said so. And again, that's a very difficult phrase to translate. And scholars have tried to, to explain this. It's just hard to explain in English. But the idea is, yeah, that's true, but not in the way you're meaning it you've said it, yeah, it's true. I can't deny it, but there's more to the story. And whatever it was, Pilate understood the nuances of that phrase because the very next verse, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And this is Pilate's response. And when it says the chief priests and crowds, this would have been an official verdict, an official declaration. And so this is Pilate's first attempt at a, at a verdict. And it's his first declaration of Jesus' innocence. The first of several, by the way. He says, I find no guilt in this man. I don't see him as a revolutionary. I don't buy the whole tax thing. I don't think he's stirring up a nation against Rome. There is nothing in the facts. And the questioning probably was, was more than what we see in Luke. Luke is just giving us a summary but I see no reason why we should go further. And so you would think if you're one of the disciples or you would think if you're looking at this that yes, we're done. He's declared not guilty. He's set free. We're on with our mission. But that's not what happens. Because the people have a voice, a loud voice, and Pilate won't stand up for what he believes. And he listens to the people. But they were urgent. They they were insistent. They they were pushing it. They were urgent saying, he stirs up the people. I feel like this is a three-year-old pointing at their sibling. He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And they're louder and louder. And Pilate's, remember, one of his responsibilities was to keep the peace. And so this is a problem. And so he doesn't Release Jesus, even though he's believe, he believes he's innocent. You know, even the, even their accusation there—he stirs up people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. That that is so general. How is that even a charge? Yeah, he taught people, but but he stirs up people. What does that even look like? And so they're, they're not specific. This isn't something Pilate can really act on, except he knows he has a crowd that is about to burst, and he doesn't know what to do with them. So point number one in your notes, if we had to summarize that that part of the story. The Roman trial, stage one, Jesus calmly endures a fiercely insistent mob, falsely accusing him. And Pilate finds Jesus innocent, but doesn't end it. And the points today, they're all a little longer, because I'm just trying to summarize the movements of the text today. Summarize the phases of the trial. And at stage one, we see Jesus just, he's there calmly, Taking this, he's enduring this. the The mob is fiercely insistent; they're urgently coming at him, and that's going to grow as as the story goes on. They're falsely accusing him. The only thing he says is the one answer to Pilate. It's not yelling. It's not screaming. Think about it. What do we do when someone falsely accuses us? We defend ourselves. We get angry—righteous anger, though. Right? I have a right to be angry. And I have a right to to show you the way and set you right. And Jesus just stands there. It's not what Jesus did. And he stands there, answers when he needs to answer. I think when he knows it's going to advance God's plan. And he doesn't have that, that anger. He doesn't display that anger, even though he's falsely accused. This is stage one. Look at a couple things. Number one, look at Jesus. This is wrong, what's happening to him. He knows this is a death sentence trial. He knows that this is a capital offense and he is unjustly accused. He's wrongly accused. Then he's declared innocent, but then Pilate won't act on that. Why is Jesus going through this? He doesn't have to. With a word, he can call down a legion of angels. He can stop this in an instance. And he's right to stop it. He's declared innocent. At least so we would think. Why did he allow it to continue? Not my will, but yours be done. Why? Because he was determined to follow the Father's will to bring us salvation because he loved us. And that's going to be the overarching theme today. He was determined to follow the Father's will to bring us salvation out of his love for us, his care for us one other point of application so on each of these i want to i want to just see the heart of jesus and and marvel at that and have that touch us deeply but also remember jesus back when he's preparing the disciples for this day and the days the hardships to come he says don't be planning your defense don't be don't be jumping to defend yourselves let me do that i am the master defender Just keep doing what I've asked you to do. And here Jesus starts to put that into practice. Those weren't idle words. He actually believed that. And He followed that. You know, we we live in in a day and age where in America we have it easy compared to a lot of oppressed countries. We have brothers and sisters right now that are in secret meeting to study God's Word because they are afraid for their lives and afraid of being arrested. But yet I also know that even in America the hardships are ramping up and it's hard to follow Christ. We get mocked because we follow Christ. We, we get, people look at us like we're stupid or crazy because we believe in biblical values and biblical truths. Village, that's life. That's what it means to follow Christ because His truths are, are not evident to those that have been deceived by Satan are not evident to those that have fallen away and will not, will not respond to Christ. People will misunderstand us. People will misjudge us. Keep following God and doing His work. Just practically, what happens when when you see someone always trying to defend themselves? It, it It detracts from the message. It detracts from what they're doing. It's annoying. It makes them look guilty. We don't have to defend ourselves. We're to defend the gospel. We're to defend the truth of God's word. But for the personal insults and the things people misjudge us, clarify where we can, but that's not our purpose. Let's not spend our time there. Let's spend our time teaching or preaching the gospel to people, sharing the gospel with people. That's what they need. That's what Jesus did. So in phase one, Jesus calmly endures a fiercely insistent mob, falsely accusing him. And Pilate finds Jesus innocent, but doesn't end it. And so we get to phase two, stage two of the Roman trial, where I'm sure everything's going to be different. And in stage two, in your notes, Jesus endures mockery and ridicule from Herod without responding in kind. And Herod finds Jesus innocent, but doesn't end it. Do You see the pattern? And so we come to verses 6 through 12. And and if you remember in verse 5, one of the things that was was said by the Jewish leaders was, he's from Galilee. He's taught in Galilee. And and, and Pilate's like, oh, oh, I have an out. This whole story is Pilate trying to weasel out of this, quite frankly. He's trying to figure out a way to make everybody happy, to not take a stand, and to, to make himself look good. And so when he hears in verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. It's like, cool. See, the thing was, Pilate was, was the governor of the southern part of Israel, of Judea. He was not governor or over the northern part, the, the region of Galilee. Herod was, one of Herod the Great's sons. And when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided up four ways, and one of his sons was still in charge of the northern area and, and ruling over that. The area in the south where Pilate was, that person had been gotten rid of and now Rome had put Pilate in to rule that area. And, and there's there's differences between them. There's there's <clears throat> no love lost between them at this point. But to Pilate, he's like, I can send them to Herod. I can pass the buck. I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to look bad. I don't have to make the hard decision. Herod will do it. And, and what a coincidence. It's Passover time and Herod's in town. This is perfect. I may be adding a little bit. But I want you to get what's happening. Verse 7, And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself at Jerusalem at that time. Then verse 8, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. See, he was happy to see Jesus. But we'll see why. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod's like, the sideshow shows up. Jesus can come, do some magic tricks for me. You know, I want to see what's happening. And this was just a show to Herod. And this was his chance to see the show. He wanted to see the miracles, wanted to see what was done. The problem is Jesus wasn't having it. And he wasn't there just to entertain Herod. By the way, this is the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. Just so we get the relationships right. And John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And so this is the man that had Jesus' cousin beheaded, wrongly so. He's there trying to to treat Jesus as a sideshow, and we're going to see it gets worse. So he, being Herod in verse 9, questioned him at some length, but he, being Jesus, made no answer. So Herod's just asking questions, and Jesus just stands there. or, Or sits there, not saying a thing. He's, he's being ridiculed, we'll see. In verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. So now we're a little bit stronger. They're worried because this is their plan to get rid of Jesus. If this doesn't work, they've got nothing. And so they ramp up their attacks. And Herod, in verse 11, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And so get this, there's questioning for a while, and and Jesus doesn't say anything, and so now they're insulting and mocking, and and the the Jews are there, the leaders of the Jews, they've ramped up their accusations. Man, this is like Jerry Springer trial. And and this isn't like our court system today, and, and it's just going and going and going. And Herod is getting the spectacle, just not the one he wanted. And it's interesting because in Isaiah 53, 7, we see this prophecy about the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus fulfills that as he just takes it and stands there. Our Lord and Savior that we love was being treated in this way. You know, part of the insults in, in verse 11, they're treating him with contempt. They're mocking him, arraying him in splendid clothing. All of this really tells us Herod isn't taking the charges seriously. Because he says, Oh, you're a king. Oh, I have some old robes. Hey, go get me one of my old robes. A nice one, but, you know, an old one I don't wear anymore. And he comes and he puts it on Jesus and they mock him for his statement that he's king. This isn't what you do to someone that you think is guilty. And in fact, if you just peek down to verse 15, Neither did Herod, thinking of whether he's guilty, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And and Pilate says, Herod didn't find him guilty either. There is nothing that this man has done. And so Herod mocks him, doesn't get what he wants, throws a little temper tantrum, insults and mocks, sends him back. It's interesting, verse 12, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And and probably the friendship is because Herod felt it was sort of a compliment that Pilate would defer to him. I don't think Pilate meant it as a compliment, but Pilate defers to him and, oh, wow, he's including me in this. And, And from that point on, they had political points with each other. It mended a friendship between the man that ordered John the Baptist executed and the man that would order Jesus to be executed. Good friendship. How do we take this section? The first thing that you notice is both Pilate and Herod now are trying to be noncommittal about Jesus. He's innocent, but we don't want to actually follow through on on actions that would show that. We don't want to anger the authorities. We don't want to anger the Jews. And and so they're trying to ride the fence about Jesus. Yeah, he's a good guy, he's innocent, but no, people don't like him and we can't really support him. Village, you cannot be noncommittal about Jesus. You either follow him or you don't. There's no middle ground. Either his claims are true or they're false and and he's an evil man. But it's one or the other and, and we have to choose. You have to choose. And you may be here today and you're still trying to make that choice. And I am so glad you're here because you're, you're, you're seeing God's Word and keep exploring God's Word, but know that you can't stay noncommittal about Christ. And in eternity, you're going to stand, every one of us is going to stand before our Creator and we're going to have to answer, what did we believe about Jesus Christ? And what did we do with that? So that's one of the messages this morning let's make a decision about Christ and follow him but again i look at how jesus responds here how did he respond he just took it he didn't say anything and not in the first section he was being falsely accused now that's added what's added on that is being mocked and being insulted and what's your i asked this on the first section i'll ask it again here what's your natural inclination when you're mocked when someone insults you to your face, what do you say after you've punched them? <laughs> right? We, we, we have this the defense mechanism that we just want to respond and, and Jesus doesn't because he is perfect and innocent. And he is following the will of God. He refused to respond in kind. I I see it with my kids. I see it with your kids. We, We naturally respond in kind. Someone mocks someone else and boy, the insults just come right back. And we've got good ones. And we know how to hurt. And we know how to prod. And we know how to poke. But responding in kind like that, it just shows our weakness. It shows what we do when we get angry. It shows we're no different. And yeah, kids are are mocking about silly things, but but we have a lot of hurts we hold on to as adults too. And we just are much more sophisticated in how we get back at the other person, whether it be the silent treatment or passive aggressive actions. But we'll get back. But Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. Why did he stand there and take the mocking? Why did he stand there and take the insults? The cloak put on him as they mock him and ridicule him. Same reason as as the first section. Because he was determined to follow the Father's will and bring us salvation. He loved us. And so now we've, we've had questioning by Pilate, declared innocent. Sent to Herod in the city, not too far away. Herod declares him innocent. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. And we get to the Roman trial, the stage three of the trial in verses 13 through 22. And we're going to see that Pilate gives his final verdict. And I put that in quotes on purpose. He gives his final verdict that Jesus is innocent and attempts to appease the crowd by punishing Jesus. But Pilate doesn't release Jesus because the people are opposed. Same thing. He's innocent. Let's try to get out of this. But I'm not going to do what's right. Let's look at these verses, starting at verse 13. Because Pilate now has as a dilemma. This is his test. This is his trial. What is he going to do? Herod didn't take care of it for him. He sent him back. The high priests are still outside demanding death. So how are we going to get out of this? So in verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. He's again bringing the Sanhedrin together, bringing those that are leveling the charges. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, it's been open, it's been transparent. That'd be nice. "And, and, And behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. This again is a second official verdict. This is a declaration. He is innocent. And in case you don't believe me, in, in 15, to Pilate to the people, neither did Herod. The two top leaders in town, we found nothing wrong with him. And we looked. And these men were both known for brutality. If they had found something, they wouldn't have hesitated to kill this man. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And so we see the declaration. That should have ended it. That should have been it. But Pilate says, okay, I've got to still get out of this somehow. I've got to get the people on my side. I, I don't dare make a decision that they don't like. So in verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. And so this is Pilate's idea. I'm going to punish him. I'm going I'm I'm to warn him. I'm going to... to Give him a reason not to do this, even though I think he wasn't. And then I'm going to release him. That'll make you happy, right? I've done something to him. Now the word for punish there, that's referring to a beating. Let's just be clear. It's referring to being scourged. And if you compare it with the other Gospels, Pilate did in fact have him beaten at this point. And then bring him back and try to release him. And so Luke doesn't go into that, but this is a real threat by Pilate. In fact, the Romans had three different kinds of beatings. They were really good at this kind of stuff. And um, the the three kinds, I'm going to crucify these words, but fustus, flagella, and ferbera. Those were their three kinds. And the first one, fustus, was the lightest. And it was often used as a judicial warning. If you thought someone was going to do something, you gave them a light beating. Now, it still was the whip with the stones and the glass in it, and it still hurt. But it wasn't to bring them close to death. It was just a few lashes, you know, make them pay a little bit, make them suffer a little bit. It's, it's the parent that says, I'm spanking you because I'm sure you will do something wrong. And so Pilate does this. And he brings them back out bloody and, and, and hurting. And he says, I'm going to release him now. Are we good? We good? And in verse 18, we find out, no, no, we're, we're not good. Pilate tried to ride the fence. He gave him that, that first beating. Now the last beating, just so we know, is coming for Jesus. That's the beating that you gave to someone, the, the verbera, that you gave to someone just before you crucified him. And one of the points was to bring them close to death so that way the crucifixion didn't take as long. And, and that Jesus will suffer that. Beating upon beating. But here it's just the first one. Pilate tried to ride the fence, find some middle ground, didn't work. So we get to verse 18. Now, as you'll notice, and and I'll just point this out so you don't have to email me later. You'll notice in most of your Bibles, there is no verse 17. And and the reason is, as we, we translate the Bible, we constantly try to go to the best manuscripts we have. And the best manuscripts we have actually don't have verse 17. It looks like a scribe added it in, a copy from from Mark and John. And it really just talks about that at a festival, their, their tradition was to release one man. At the Passover, the Romans said, you know, we'll appease the Jews a little bit. We will release one prisoner to you because we are so kind, so generous. So verse 17 just talks about that. It's nothing um, that isn't said in 18 and 19. The people in verse 18, but they all cried out together away with this man and re- release us Barabbas. And so this is referring to this tradition at the festival that someone's going to be released. And and we know that Pilate says, uh, you know, we have Barabbas here. Barabbas is a murderer and insurrectionist. He is guilty. We know he's guilty. Or we have Jesus who who is innocent. Let's release Jesus. Makes sense, right? And in verse 18, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. This is a bad guy. And the leaders are inciting the crowd and they're saying, no, no, let's take Barabbas. Release him instead of Jesus. Pilate wanted to release Jesus. He keeps trying. He wants to slither out of this. But the people would rather give freedom to an insurrectionist and a murderer. How great is the deception in their hearts. How great is the deception in our hearts when sin takes over and we let it have free reign. So in verse 20, Pilate responds, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. And and all this time we think, okay, Pilate's trying to do the right thing. We know from another gospel his wife had a dream and, uh, and said, don't have anything to do with this man's death. And so he's trying. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And we see the phrase repeated for emphasis. It's doubled to show the intensity. The tense here is an unending cry. They just keep crying and crying and crying. Yelling and yelling and yelling and the riot is growing and the the emotions of the crowd are rising and Pilate's in trouble because Pilate doesn't see a way that he can keep the peace. Verse 22, A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Even if he, he did do some things, there's nothing that deserves the death penalty here. I will therefore punish and release him. Whip him a little bit, we're good. He'll learn his lesson. Everybody's happy. That was not what the crowd would accept. Quite frankly, because that wasn't God's will here. And God is willingly, Jesus is willingly going to the cross and God's will is being done. This is the third declaration of innocence that Pilate gives. With Herod's statement, it's the fourth time in this passage that Jesus is declared innocent by people who examined him, by, with witnesses that would have seen these things when Luke wrote this. And, and this could have been verified. Later, we'll see one of the criminals on the cross declare Jesus' innocence. We'll see a centurion declare Jesus' righteousness. This was an innocent man being treated in the most despicable way possible. Jesus suffers because Pilate is wishy-washy. He gives in to the crowd. He compromises. Village, this should make us sick. But Jesus allows it. Why? Same reason as the stages one and two, because he was determined to follow the Father's will and bring us salvation. In 1 Peter 2, we read in verse 21-24, through 24, For to you this has been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. But I love that verse. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. And again, we we have turmoil watching Jesus go through this and our hearts ache because Jesus goes through this. But we also can, can see, we learn from verses like that, that our trust is in God the Father. It's not in the judicial system. It's not in hoping for a verdict or hoping for a ruling. Our trust is in God Almighty. What circumstances are you in today that you need to trust the one who judges rightly in? What circumstances do we need to stop worrying about and stop holding so tightly and stop letting, us, letting consume us because we know God the Father has got it covered? And He will judge rightly even if it's in eternity he will make it right and his will is going forward this is the not my will moment for Jesus this is not my will in action but your will be done and we get to the last section the last stage of the trial and easily the saddest part of the story Point number four, Pilate gives in to the crowd rather than stand for what he believes. And an innocent Jesus is sent to die in the place of a guilty Barabbas. Let me repeat that. Pilate gives in to the crowd rather than stand for what he believes. And an innocent Jesus is sent, or rather he goes willingly, to die in the place of guilty Barabbas. And and I want us as we see these verses to see the picture, the image of what is happening here. In verse 23, but they were urgent, and this is the the leaders and the crowd, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. That's the turning point. That's where Pilate says, okay, fine, I just need to shut you up. I just need to make peace. You can have your way. And he gave in to their urgency. He gave in to the loudness. He gave in to the demands. The riot was beginning and he gave in to stop the riot. He did the easy thing, the expedient thing instead of the right thing. And again, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we see self-protection in action. And self-protection is this insidious sin that we will do just about anything to keep ourselves from being, being hurt, to keep ourselves from being incriminated. We are people that protect ourselves almost at all costs. And we see Pilate doing this. And so in 24 and 25, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus, who was innocent, over to their will. The murderer is released. The deliverer is slain do you see the impact of this decision? The leaders, the crowd, they're turning on him. And we see this turning in the crowd as the leaders incited them and just kept the emotions going. And it became so urgent. Why did they give in to that? Why did the crowd give in to the leaders? Ultimately, it's their sin nature. It, th- their sin nature demanded it just like our sin nature has caused every one of us to sin and oppose Christ. We all oppose Christ before we accept Him, before He draws us to salvation. We all oppose Him in our own way. And in this case, the crowd is just doing what their sin nature is driving them to do to oppose Christ because they don't want to acknowledge His claims. Village, we are all fallen. It could easily be us in those leaders or that crowd. But more than that, it's probably us in the place of Barabbas. We are all fallen. We are all guilty. We are all deserving of death. One of Aesop's fables tells a story about a scorpion and a frog. And the two meet on the bank of a river, and the scorpion asks the frog for a ride across the stream on his back. The frog asks, how do I know you won't sting me? Good question. The scorpion says, Because if I do, I will also die. The frog is satisfied, and they set out across the river. Midstream, the scorpion stings the frog, and they both begin to drown. The frog gasps out, Why? The scorpion simply replies, It is my nature. That's us. Fallen humanity, we have a sin nature. It distorts our view of truth, it distorts our mind that we can even kill the author of life that we can even kill Jesus Christ the Messiah the one came to save the good news is Christ can redeem that that's the story here that Christ will redeem that and see the picture here see the big picture Jesus died in the place of sinners and, and this situation with Barabbas is just a picture of what our situation is with God and what Jesus did for us on the cross. See, Jesus took the place of Barabbas. An innocent man took the place of Barabbas who should have been executed and killed, took his place in prison, took his place on the cross, and Barabbas is set free and has the freedom that Jesus should have had. Right? We see that from the story. We're like, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Well, that's what Jesus did for you and I on the cross. You and I, because of our sins, because of that nature that we've given into, because of our opposition to Christ, you and I deserve to be hanging on that cross and and to die as a penalty for our sins. It's a just and right penalty. But Jesus, in his substitutionary death, took our place and hung on the cross as an innocent man, and he had to be innocent to pay for our sins so we could receive his righteousness. This is a blessed exchange. This is an exchange that is undeserved, that is one of grace. And so just as Jesus takes Barabbas' place, that's a, a foretaste of on the cross, he would take your place and my place. And He would offer us His righteousness. He would offer us salvation if we turn to Him, if we repent and follow Him. What a great picture in an awful story. This is what we have to be grateful for. This is what we have to be thankful for. That Jesus, through no merit of our own, took our place... And died in our place and paid the penalty for our sin, every sin we would commit and will commit in our lives. That's we're celebrating. That's why Jesus went through this. And at the end, in their ignorance, they release a guilty man and kill an innocent man. But in God's beautiful plan, He's illustrating what He does for everyone. Follow Him. I urge you, don't neglect that gift. Don't ignore that gift. That is there for every individual, no matter what your sins are, no matter what you've done, knowing that you deserve death from an eternal God, but knowing that Jesus paid that price. And Jesus says, you can be released and I'll take your place. Just like I did for Brett. That's the point this morning. Jesus endured this to do his Father's will to bring salvation for the guilty. That's us. Appreciate that. If you already know Christ, think about that anew this Christmas season, this Thanksgiving season, and be amazed at what Christ has done for you and be grateful, intensely grateful. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know Him, today's the day you can. You just have to say, I repent of my sins. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I acknowledge I've opposed you. And I choose to follow you with my life and give you my life. And Jesus will save you. So many lessons out of this. We can learn from Pilate we can see what compromise did to him as his decisions got worse and worse. But more than that, we can learn from Barabbas because that's us. That's us. Hebrews 12, 1-4 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Then here we get to, to description of Jesus who endured the beatings, who endured the mockery, who endured the false accusations and still went to the cross for us to be sin for us. In Second Corinthians 5, we also read, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the exchange. Let me read that again. For our sake, he being God the Father, made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Today we acknowledge Jesus was innocent. He was sinless. He didn't deserve this. But he was made sin through our sin. And he took our sin on himself, paid the price. Follow him today. Lord God, we thank You. Lord, with a gratitude that is deep and wells up from our souls, our saved souls. Lord, thank You for bringing us into Your family, for adopting us as Your own, for reconciling with us, for making that possible when we had no chance of doing that on our own. Lord, help us to live lives of gratitude. Help us to go from here and live in a way that shows that we are grateful to You, Lord, that lives righteously, as recipients of your righteousness. Help us to be different in a world that doesn't get it, that doesn't understand that, but to be willing to take a firm stand for truth and for your way and for what is right. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for your sacrifice for what you endured in your name.